Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, based on the paper, Jack Consensus Statements for Training and Certification in Colonoscopy, published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in January 2023. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, Deputy Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Social Media Associate Editor and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool, United Kingdom. And I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Keith Sow, Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Cornwall Hospitals NHS Trust, Truro, Cornwall, United Kingdom, and Dr. Avind Murugan Nanam. Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, Wolverhampton, UK, and Director of the Midlands Endoscopy Training Academy. Dr. Sow is the first author in this consensus paper, and Dr. Murugan Nanan is the senior author. Keith and Vinny, as you've asked to be called, thank you so much for joining me to do this podcast today on this very important topic, and congratulations on your paper. So, leading into our first question, there's been a number of training and certification pathways that have come out recently from the Joint Advisory Group for Endoscopy, JAG, as it's also known, including Upper GI Endoscopy, Flexible Sigmoidoscopy, and now Colonoscopy, which we are discussing today, of course. Can you explain the background to this pathway, why it's important, and how you and your co-authors set about developing it and the recommendations. Well, thank you, Phil. I'll start with this one, if I may. And thank you for the kind introductions. The original JAG certification pathways have been around since about 2004 with, with, with informal versions preceding this. And the reason was that there were independent practitioners in various forms of endoscopy without any form of formal quality assurance. Um, back in those days, there was credentialing where tra- trainees or practitioners were granted uh, privileges for endoscopy, but without going through a formal, objective or rigorous assessment process. These original pathways were non-evidence-based and laid out by a small group of experts and then rolled out for national implementation. And they have been very successful uh, with, with quality assurance and giving us a stepping stone and a template to base training round. But unfortunately, these have now, with, with the accumulating body of evidence over the last 10 years, these have to be updated and make sure that um, they are fit for purpose. Neil Hawkes, who was the quality assurance of training lead for JAG, back about five years ago when I was the clinical fellow or research fellow there, had a vision and he wanted to streamline all certification pathways and make sure that they were evidence-based and that they could withstand international scrutiny. And most importantly, they would be used to support and quality assure training in a transparent and robust way. And we set out to follow this vision uh, spread across different endoscopic modalities so that these certification pathways could be modernised. And we started out with OGD, ERCP, followed by FlexiSig and colonoscopy because of logistics with inviting stakeholders, 
um, across the UK to participate to make sure that we have relevant representation. We follow the grade uh, framework for level of ed- evidence and strength of recommendations. And these, we ended up with the certification uh, pathway that you see in front of us uh, that has been ratified by stakeholders and now actually has been implemented for use, at least for colonoscopy, in August of this year. Um, the ERCP pathway was published earlier last year, and that's going to come out in force sometime in the second half of this year. And there is an endoscopic ultrasound pathway that is also going through the same process. Thank you, Kiefer. That's very clear. It sounds like a huge amount of work that's gone on. Could you uh, summarise the main changes with the certification pathway for colonoscopy compared with the preceding one? Um, So I think one of the main changes that will be apparent is that we've moved away from a provisional certification status for colonoscopy. The drive for that was that uh, we wanted to avoid having a two-tier service for patients, uh, whereby independent endoscopists could have been provisionally certified and in the old system would have been able to remove a polyp um, sized one centimetre or less. When they moved to full certification, they would have then been able to remove a uh, polyp of two centimetres or less or be accredited to do so. We didn't feel this was a patient-friendly certification standard and therefore moved away from this, particularly around the polypectomy standards. In addition, we'd also found that quite a number of endoscopists had never really gone on to gain their full certification status and therefore had remained at provisional certification in colonoscopy. The second significant change, I think, in the pathway is that competency in polypectomy uh, would now be using the quite widely accepted site morphology, size and access, or SMSA, scoring system as part of the certification process. As part of the flexible sigmoidoscopy certification process, we'd expect practitioners to be able to remove SMSA level 1 polyps And for colonoscopy, we'd expect practitioners to be able to remove SMSA level 2 polyps. Previously, competence in polypectomy was purely around size alone. And as we all know now, this doesn't really give a representation of difficulty of polypectomy. In addition, the new guidance also requires evidence of competency in the differing techniques of polypectomy, uh, such as cold snare, hot snare, EMR, piecemeal EMR. So again, this is reflective of current practice and also reflective of now as being much more aware of the ties between polypectomy technique and PCCRC. The other uh, aspects of uh, the certification process which is uh, different are the procedural numbers. Um, So Previously, the certification stand uh, certification could um, be sought when a practitioner had undertaken a minimum of two hundred procedures, and then they could move to provisional certification uh, following the summative sign-off process. They would then need a further hundred procedures uh, to be undertaken and recorded in jets uh, before moving towards the full certification process. And the new pathway. 
um, trainees would be eligible for summative sign-off after completing a minimum of 280 colonoscopies. So that may be perceived as a difference uh, between being independent potentially at 200 procedures to now potentially being independent at 280. However, if you look at it purely on full competency, then actually you could suggest there's actually been a reduction from a total number of procedures of 300 previously down to 280. The other changes um, in the pathway include the recognition of the value of reflective practice in developing safe, competent and confident independent practitioners. Uh, So we've therefore added a JETS reflective tool uh, to ensure that reflection forms part of the journey uh, for the trainees through their endoscopy training. So I think that summarises some of the main changes um, that are uh, within the, the new pathway. Thank you very much, Vinny. That's a great uh, overview of the paper. It is clear, though, uh, at least from my reading, that the competence bar for colonoscopy has been raised from previous recommendations with uh, an increase in procedure numbers as well as the introduction of the size, morphology, site, access level 2 polypectomies. What were the major drivers for these changes? I know that you've discussed it loosely at the moment. The previous certification pathway for colonoscopy included a competence requirement uh, for taking off polyps up to 20 millimetres. We recognise that this is actually quite a high bar uh, and it's not feasible for all polyps because 20 millimetre polyps may be inaccessible locations, maybe crossing a fold, maybe around the appendix or IC valve or on a, a, in a rectal verge. So that there are nuances which can make a 20 millimetre polyp unsafe for everyone to take off and, and for this to be a realistic target. We recognise that the point of colonoscopy is detection and competent resection. And, and by competent resection, I mean uh, on block and uh, full uh, on R0 resection so that patients uh, have the the, the lowest possible risk of adenoma recurrence, uh, and this is linked with uh, post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer. So so we want to really focus on this, and we know that the majority of of polyps that we encounter are SMSA level 1 and 2. In fact, they make up about 92% of our polyp polyps encountered during colonoscopy. So we need to make sure that people who are signed off for colonoscopy are able to take off these polyps, which are commonly encountered, so that we minimise patients returning for further procedures, which can lead to higher costs, delays with definitive treatment, carbon, a higher carbon footprint, etc., etc. So we wanted to make sure that this is fully fit for purpose. The SMSA score is well validated now. Um, it was developed, I think, in, in, in St. Mark's, and it's now being validated by Michael Burke's group for large polyps. And it shows that the higher the difficulty, which is what SMSA refers to, the higher the complication rates, the higher the polyp recurrence rates, etc. We felt that given that the majority of polyps were SMSA level one and two, the, the emphasis of the guideline is to make sure that trainees are well-versed with each reception modality for polypectomy and that they can do it well. So there is also an increased uh, emphasis on assessments with more doppies 
which is the direct observation of polypectomy skills to make sure that trainees can remove both SMSA level one and level two polyps. Thank you very much, Keith. That's very, very clear. It was interesting reading the guidance as it suggests water-assisted colonoscopy should form part of training in colonoscopy. Should trainers not using this technique routinely learn this in order to be able to train others in it, therefore? Thanks for bringing up water-assisted colonoscopy. It does form one um, statement in our um, certification pathway. And uh, as you know, I'm I'm quite an avid fan of water-assisted colonoscopy and I published a guide um, with Frontline on this technique. And, and just as a background for water, water has several advantages in colonoscopy. First of all, it carries a gra- gravitational effect. So the weight of water actually straightens the sigmoid colon when your patient is in a left lateral position. The weight of the water also stretches out the sigmoid colon and reduces looping. It makes it straight. And by that, it, it prevents loop formation and reduces patient discomfort. And it's very clear now with the randomized controlled trial evidence that this is a true effect, especially with water exchange colonoscopy. Additionally, it improves bowel cleanliness. It increases adenoma detection. For trainees, there is some scan data that it reduces competency development times. So in summary, water-assisted colonoscopy simplifies the procedure and improves patient outcomes. So in response to to your question, should trainers not routinely learn and train others? I think this this is an obvious yes. And in fact, in difficult situations, such as diverticular disease, or, or fixed pelvis from hysterectomy, uh, water has its advantages. So, so I think, yes, there is evidence now to support it. Yes, we should be supporting trainers to effectively train in water-assisted colonoscopy. How are we going to do that? I think that the main way is really uh, emphasising this in trainer-trainer courses and also probably adapting some of our basic skills in colonoscopy uh, courses so that uh, we, we, we can train uh, trainees and trainers to do this properly. But it is a weak level recommendation um, because we, we, we recognise that not, not all of our trainer workforce um, currently engage with water-assisted methods. Thank you, Keith. Uh, and uh, our listeners should definitely uh, refer to Keith's excellent water-assisted colonoscopy paper that was published in Frontline Gastroenterology. Moving on, and this is uh, a slightly provocative question here, guys. I hope you don't mind. I was interested to see that a recommendation for magnetic endoscopy imaging being used for colonoscopy training lists was only preferential and actually a weak recommendation. And the the consensus uh, was actually lower than I would have expected. If the emphasis of this pathway is on enhancing good quality colonoscopy, which it, it almost certainly is, why not ensure or make it very clear that at least uh, that the least experienced uh, endoscopies have the best opportunity to improve their skills? Or should it be that the best scopes and the best equipment are reserved for the most senior endoscopists? That's me being very provocative there. I think one of the main points that we had to consider when writing this guidance is that magnetic endoscopic imaging is not something that is across all endoscopy platforms i.e. not all manufacturers have this available, or certainly didn't when we were writing this guidance. The second point is, in terms of the evidence base, 
there is certainly strong suggestions that you can improve sequel intubation rates in patients um, with trainees or inexperienced endoscopists, but also in experts with more uh, technical or difficult cases. There is also some data to suggest that you can improve the time to reach the cecum, as well as comfort scores. Uh, but the data can be conflicting in, in, in terms of those uh, measurements. I think there is a gap in terms of the evidence base, and I think one of the gaps is the enhancement that an imager gives to the trainer to be able to effectively train the trainee. So I think that's one of the things that we may want wanted to have seen in terms of benefits to trainers and um, to be able to effectively train their trainees um, to have some evidence base behind it. The other concern that we had as a group is that we didn't want to make a recommendation that would enforce units to purchase more equipment potentially for training. And as you say, there are some uh, guide, there is some guidance within bowel cancer screening that uh, images should ideally be used uh, in those procedures. And that's largely around location of, of cancers, uh, which can be highly beneficial, uh, particularly in the, when you know that you have a high pickup rate in those lists for, for colorectal cancers. And we certainly know from the evidence base that um, magnetic endoscopic images are accurate and can be therefore used potentially if other systems have failed, such as tattoo location, uh, locating, etc. So those are the main reasons that we, we went with our weaker recommendation, although accepted that most trainees and most trainers would very strongly uh, advocate use of magnetic endoscopic imaging. Great answer, Vinny. Uh, I think you, you handled that provocative question extremely well. So thank you for that. Another po possibly uh, slightly troubling question is, um, are you confident that given the current UK endoscopy training system uh, can can really support this change in certification and the recommendations in the paper, given general internal medicine pressures in the UK and the changes to training that we all know have occurred fairly recently, such as Shape of Training Directive, which cuts GI training just to four years? Um, in a word, I think it's going to be a real challenge to implement this. My honest uh, feeling with this, and I say, I say that it's going to be difficult because even with our last certification pathway, uh, with provisional certification set at 200, there were some challenges, especially from the colorectal specialty, with achieving this. Uh, and not all gastroenterology trainees had even full certification, uh, had provisional certification, let alone full certification, as as Rini alluded to. And with with, with our um, increase in procedure numbers. You know, there, there is a perception that this bar may be more difficult to reach. But in fact, we've actually cut down on the, the, the higher bar, which is the resection of up to 20 millimeter polyps to a more doable SMSA level two uh, polyp. And I, th I think this will be a, a challenge. This, this Delphi consensus was done before COVID, where, you know, COVID has completely um, ha has had a huge impact on, on training, but luck fortunately, 
you know, now we, we have data showing that training is reverting back to pre-COVID levels, but there is still a lot of competition uh, amongst trainees to get their hands on the scope. And, and, and perhaps Vinny can, can help me out with this, but one of the solutions that we have that's new is to do more training in academy systems so that trainees of different specialties would get a block of dedicated endoscopy training. And this has to be agreed with the training program director, deaneries, individual trusts, general medicine voters, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but this would enable trainees to have a, a block of concentrated endoscopy training. And this has worked out really well for OGDs. And I think it is coming, it is in place now for colonoscopy. And, I, and, and, and Vinny is very well placed to, to take over and, and talk about academies. Thanks, Keith. Um, I think what the academies are achieving is that we now have a much greater oversight of where our endoscopy, or certainly our deanery endoscopy trainees are with their progression in endoscopy. And that is married up to them, to that being within a a JAG training centre rather than just the oversight of a TPD, which I'm sure was there before, but we now have uh, invested interest from those delivering the endoscopy training as well. Um, so I think the things that have been fairly simple wins uh, for academies have been really to get the uh, skills courses under people's belts early on in training, which is another one of the recommendations of this uh, certification pathway. Um, so we've largely been able to do that, certainly in the Midlands and most of the other academies have, have been able to achieve similar uh, sorts of goals In addition to that, we are also providing polypectomy courses and hemostasis courses. Um, So those tissue model courses are being appropriately placed in in the training pathway for deanery trainees, both in surgery um, and in um, in gastroenterology. Keith's mentioned immersive training, so most academies have also um, started to implement immersive training. So that's a dedicated block of upper GI or colonoscopy training. The length of the block alters depending on which site you're in in the country in terms of the academy, but largely most people are providing at least four weeks of a block. And within that four weeks, most academies are providing something like four lists with an expert trainer. So it's that um, condensed training that ought to be able to bump up somebody's procedural numbers, but also just having effective uh, regular training over a four-week period should hopefully embed some of those um, techniques for them and allow them to gain competency a bit quicker towards their end goal of, of full certification. So I think there are a number of things that have been put in place to try and help trainees achieve competency in, in endoscopy during their training period. It is unfortunate that the training pathway was uh, for gastroenterology was cut from five years to four years at the same time almost as uh, the certification pathways changing as well. I think one of the other things that we ought to recognise is actually colonoscopy certification isn't mandatory for gastroenterology trainees as such, and there will be a differentiation after the second year between luminal and hepatology and, so, and the hepatology trainees wouldn't be expected to achieve uh, colonoscopy sign-off as part of their 
CCT process. Thank you very much for that um, very comprehensive answer. And uh, it's good that uh, Vinny ended on a positive note. Leading slightly from the previous question, one of the criticisms previously of JAG pathways or guidance, at least when I was a uh, registrar training, uh, which wasn't too long ago, is that whilst it might be achievable as a training in some centres across the UK, they were unachievable in other centres because of the way that training varies from region to region, place to place. Whilst this pathway seems to place much emphasis on the trainee to achieve certain standards, is there any move to placing more emphasis on GI units to alter the way that they train trainees, i.e. those centres not prioritising training have, have this reflected potentially even in their JAG status? Do the trainers, once they've been trained up, get assessed? Um, part of the JAG certification for any unit that offer training is that they're training will be evaluated so certainly JAG site accreditation is very much uh, dependent on providing a suitable training environment and that includes access to training and number of training lists and also includes feedback on uh, the training episodes provided by the the centre so JAG very much has um, an eye on that. In terms of of, um, most people mostly concerned about access and procedural numbers, that is something that um, has been under the wing of training programme directors, but increasingly now uh, would also be forming part of the overview of, of academy directors to ensure that we see equity in terms of procedural numbers at sites and, and trainees are having access to those lists um, as they should be doing. So I think there are things that are already in place that then can ensure that um, trainees do have um, access and therefore should be able to um, achieve their certification standards. Um, one of the other questions you mentioned was um, trainers and whether trainers get assessed. So um, certainly to be a trainer, you do need to be a, cert- a JAG accredited or certified trainer. So we have various courses that would achieve this, um, the main ones being train the gastro gastroscopy trainer or train the colonoscopy trainer what we haven't really had in place is a revalidation of training and this is certainly something that's in the pipeline from JAG and we've started to to look at this in our own region so we've been providing trainer update courses uh, in the region to ensure that people are aware of more recent techniques such as water immersion as, as Keith has already spoken about or really just having that consistency of message across um or trainers across the country and certainly in a region. Um, so, yes, updating trainers is one of the other things that's very much part and parcel of uh, ensuring that trainees do get equity of offers across the region. Thank you, Vinny. That's very clear. And, uh, and just uh, now to the final question, how do we ensure that DOPS are done during a training list and not overlooked during a busy, often overbooked uh, colonoscopy list despite potentially even being designated as a training list, as it forms clearly a major part of the overall assessment of colonoscopy competency. So DOPS are important as a formative and summative assessment tool for endoscopy. And uh, the, in the UK, we, we have DOPS. In America, in the investor world, they, they may have different, different competency assessment tools. 
But the dots are used in, in, in many countries now abroad, uh, as well as the doppies uh, for polypectomy. In our latest guidelines, we recognise the importance of DOPS as part of a formative process for learning. Uh, and we encourage trainees and trainers to do this as frequently as possible, uh, but ideally to a minimum of one in 10 procedures. And I think one in 10, that's one every two colonoscopy lists, is, is, is probably reasonable to allow this discussion and, and, and to, to look at strengths and weaknesses in a structured manner to give feedback appropriately and set focused um, objectives for the next training session. And DOPS also allow not just the trainees to see where they're going, but also the trainers and program directors um, to, to monitor milestone development. So we can see for, for a trainee within a certain stage where they're expected to perform with their DOPS markers and items. And you're right, that Phil, that it will be challenging to ensure that DOPS are done as, as often as possible or one, uh, or, or one per 10 procedures. And Jack have done a number of things to try and, well, encourage this. Uh, and the first is that Jack have now included a, a reminder box on jets for trainers and trainees to do a, a, a DOPS for each list that they've been to. And, and this automated text box uh, is helpful for trainers to get a bearing of you know, how they are with, with, with assessments. And I think spreading the word with this new requirement will also help with increasing DOPS uptake. The second is that for trainee feedback, um, that, that there, there is a component where they, they measure or, or they rank whether they've had access to uh, DOPS opportunities. Uh, and this is in the feedback questionnaires for, for trainees, at least in, in our trusts. And I suspect in, 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 this is a standard, this would be a standard um, question for most trainees um, as they change from, from rotation to rotation. The DOPS will also be emphasised in train-the-trainers courses, basic skills courses, to ensure that they're being uh, used appropriately. And then finally, we do have directly observed teaching skills, um, which are DOPS, which are used um, to rate how trainers train their trainees. Uh, and this is usually done by a peer um, endoscopist who would see oversee their, 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 their colleague training. Uh, and this, we believe, will, will really um, up the standards of training uh, in individual units in the UK. And being able to competently assess DOPS is part of the directly observed teaching skills as well. So we hope that the combination of these measures, as well as the updated certification pathway, will increase the uptake uh, of DOPS and, and, and make these more accessible for trainers to do. Absolutely. Thank you very much, uh, Keith, for that um, uh, very detailed answer. And thank you to both of you for those answers and for doing this podcast today. Congratulations to you all on um, uh, your paper being published in Frontline Gastroenterology. It's a uh, fantastic consensus paper, so well done to you all. 
to our listeners and uh, thank you for listening today to this podcast i'm sure you'll agree it's uh, been really interesting if you want to read the consensus paper then do click on the link which is underneath this podcast and of course please do join us in the future for further Grundline Gastroenterology podcasts.